both of you. Um, Susie, you are not uh, a stranger to North Cornwall, because I gather you've been coming on holiday here for years. Yeah, we come every year for a week. And you, and you know the skate park in Waitbridge very well. <laughs> <laughs> but Esther, you're, you're very much an East Anglian by, by persuasion, so welcome, and I'm thrilled you've made this, this huge journey. Um, these are two books which are, are on the face of it, um, in the old days, in the days Lenny was talking about, the pre-Virago days, might have been dismissed as women's fiction. But they are so not women's fiction, but they are very feminine in their, in their focus. I mean, they're, they're books about the difficulty of loving, the difficulty of being a mother, the difficulty of being a daughter. Esther, would you, where did this one come from? Um, where did it come from? It, I did have um, a desire to write a book about love, is where, the, where it came from initially. I had been writing a play set in a prison. Um, all the characters were men. It was a play about men in prison learning to do embroidery. And there was one woman and seven men. And um, I, I guess over the years I was writing that play and working on that, I started thinking a lot about how much I wanted to write about something completely different, especially as my research involved going to um, going to a prison every Tuesday to the sewing group at Wandsworth Prison, and I was like, I thought yeah, I'd my, my old prison. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I lived as a little boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I do carry on. <laughs> and you said one woman and seven men. I took on of the Snow White angle. <laughs> I brought that in. Um, anyway, I, I started thinking about how much I wanted to write about love. And um, I decided that I would write about love from the points of view of three women of different generations. And so I chose just for sort of ease of chronology, um, sort of someone in my own lifetime, someone in my mother's, someone in my grandmother's. And um, the book, that's really where it began. So we have, we have these three stories which run concurrently through it. Yeah. I'm, I'm very wary of spoilers, but I'll leave it to you to say how much of the plot you want us to reveal. But at the heart of it is a, is a might have been, isn't it? Because your, your own mother um, might have had well, things happen to her. After writing for a fairly short time, I realised, oh, I need a plot. And, um, <laughs> I, it's funny, some, some books you feel more concerned about not knowing the plot when you start, and some I, I just felt I had so much to say about love from different generations and the way that you were able to love to do with the way you've been brought up and the way that you were able to um, experience love to do with your own upbringing and to pass it on. I felt that would almost be enough. But when I really thought about my mother's um, generation and my mother in particular, I started to really think about, and this is where the plot came from, really this sort of fills the center of the book, the fact that my mother, when she had her first child and then me, didn't tell um, anyone in her family apart from her younger sister that she was pregnant or had children. And I found myself thinking, God, I've always known that. And it just hit me as if I'd never known it, what that really meant, having had three children myself and the idea that you would go through that so on your own. It just suddenly I sort of thought, okay, so there's my plot. And I imagined and this comes into it very early on, but it is really the plot of the book, is what if my mother had of um, not been the person she was and had different circumstances and did what so many unmarried women in the early 60s did, but... Well, to go to a mother and baby home. Yes, or, or um, even in just a normal hospital, often it was assumed that you would give your baby up. Uh -huh. And so that became the sort of storyline I followed. And it gave me the, the real... It really gave me the other two characters on either side, because obviously they were affected by that decision. And Susie, you've also written a novel which is entirely kind of melded around the, the, the dilemma of the single mother and the, that mother-child relationship that is so close that if it goes wrong, there's sort of no, no air left in the room, in a way. Um, yeah, well, the idea of this one came on the Christmas after my mother died, I thought, Having, having Christmas in London would be completely unbearable, and I need to sort of, I, I love Christmas almost more than life itself, but I thought <laughs> I can't, I can't do, have Christmas without my mum. So we all decided to go to Miami, which was not the <laughs> obvious choice. <laughs> and um, uh, 
on Christmas Eve, we went to see that film, La La Land, which had just come out. And afterwards, we walked past this building. It was a very glamorous looking white building with tons of red parcels outside, covered in gold Christmas trees. And it was a church. And there was a sign outside saying, radical welcome, extreme empathy, which was quite a sort of alarming <laughs> and, um, and we went in, and there was a, a church service um, just beginning for Christmas Eve. And the church specialized in helping people with addiction problems. And so a lot of the people in the church were suffering from the effects of drugs or alcohol, very, very shaky or, or um, sort of nodding in and out. So it was an odd combination of a sort of disnified church of extreme welcome and people um, not doing so well. And there were, in front of me, there were three little girls in um, red flamenco dresses with a high nylon content right next to a bank of candles, which added a whole other inner fireman sounds thinking, this is not going to end well. Anyway, um, there was something about this scene that had a lot of um, liveliness and excitement and, and sort of humanity and also a lot of desperation that really stayed with me. And then when I, when I came back to London, I wrote the, an early scene in the book, which is a christening, which has a, a, a beautiful baby at the heart of it, but also lots of sort of peril and danger. And the book grew out of that combination. And whereas this novel, at its sort of darkest heart, has a mother um, being obliged, persuaded, to give her baby up, you've almost got the, the negative opposite of that, which is a, a mother, well, a grandmother, um, or virtually kidnapping her own grandchild so as to rescue it from her daughter. Who she is, doesn't think will be able to be Who she mom. thinks will not be a, a, able to cope. Yeah, um, so she, she pretty much um, makes off with her granddaughter. Um, but but, but it, what's so moving is that it's also a, a chance of redemption for her as a mother, having, having felt that she, her love for her daughter failed maybe with the granddaughter it will work. And similarly, you feel the daughter thinks, having not been a great daughter, she can give this amazing baby to her mum and maybe um, some good will come of it. Yes. So it's a yeah. second chance for everyone. It is. I think, I think one, one of the things I found so moving about it was, was how little we hear of the, the addict daughter's feelings. And, you know, she remains quite an elusive character on the page, um, which, which sort of makes it all the more devastating. I don't want to give away too much no, of the plot. I try to be very <laughs> respectful to all the characters and really not assume anything. And also I think almost all writing about addiction generally is really boring because it's such a sort of the banality of it, the, 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 the raised hopes, the dashed hopes, the starting again, the, the going back into it, the tiny glimmer of possibility and then that crashing down. That, that's a sort of cycle that can go on for decades and decades and decades. So I sort of felt coming at it very, very much on the slant would um, make people think about it in a fresh way. It struck me that where, where Loved and Missed is, is a book where men are noticeable by that, they're notable by their absence in a way. Mm -hmm. The fathers have, have done that, that sometimes devastating bit by making somebody pregnant, but they really don't play a role. Whereas in Esther's novel, I Couldn't Love You More, um, fathers are rather, they, they are very <coughs> present, but they're, they're not doing a brilliant job. Um. <laughs> sometimes I try and defend the men in my books generally because people sometimes say, oh, you know, the men are always disappointing or irresponsible or absent. And I'm like, well, there are other men. They just don't, they're not so sort of arresting. And so we forget them more quickly. Well, no, the men are very arresting. I mean, Felix is a hugely arresting figure, but also Cashel in the, the oldest generation. Yeah. I think what, what's very subtle there is you show how his... Um, failures as a as a father and and a husband are um, his wife is Eva is in some way has been complicit in that um, in a very kind of Irish way that it, it's it's part of she sees almost her role as being to mop up the mess. But I thought um, so much about the way generations of parenting has changed and generations of dutiful marriages have changed in my lifetime. So that you know my my grandparents' generation it was it was very much. Um, the married couple who were at their most loyal to each other and they put themselves first. And in, in my mother's generation, so people became, um, it was very much about the individual and sort of finding your best life and having your kind of um, revolutionary existence. 
And in my generation, it's all about the children. Yes. And the, the partners. The tyranny of the children. Yeah. <laughs> the partners hardly get a. You're like, oh yeah, I know my husband. Oh, I don't know where he is. You know, it's very <laughs> quick to be like that. Yeah. And I don't know what the next generation will do. Um, I'm sure they've already begun to do to do it. I just haven't quite um, found out. But um, so I was really interested in, in the in the older generation in my book, Cashel and Aoife, because um, I thought again about what happened with my mother, and I, I really adored my grandmother when I did finally get to meet her. I was about six. And um, which, which side of the family was she? This is my, my mother's, mother's mother. parents. Right. And, um, but I was always a little bit nervous of my sort of, you know, very male, sort of irascible, no-nonsense grandfather. And I was also aware that my mother had been sort of scared by him. Whereas, but then, of course, later, I thought, well, they were in it together. You know, my, my grandfather apparently said, you've made your bed, now you must lie on it. Well, she must have said, you know, it's because she had to. She sided with him. Or, or was she, or did she think she must side with him? I don't know. People tended to side with their, because they've made vows, they made vows in church. Yeah. They, I always think that when you when you sit through a, a wedding, sit through a wedding. When you go to a wedding, <laughs> <laughs> the vows are all about the, each other. The, yeah. the children are never mentioned apart from you know, the bringing forth of children. But there's no there's no vow to um, protect the child in the event of the, the father proving rather hopeless. That might um, kill the vibe slowly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could we hear a little bit from each of your books to give, give for those of us who haven't yet, those who haven't yet read them? It'd be lovely to have a flavour. Okay, I'm going to read a little bit from chapter four. Ruth, the grandmother in the book, is um, a, a school, an English teacher at an academic girls' comprehensive, um, where she's much loved. There was a slippery glamour to the teenage schoolgirl. Everything was becoming to them fury, outrage, when they were sullen or sleeping at their desks, blowing smoke rings into the air at the bus stop with concentration, speed eating hazelnut yogurt between lessons, boxing up crimson spaghetti sauce in the domestic science lab, ponytail fronds dangling in the Tupperware. Their spots could look quite beautiful from some angles, like defiant punkish jewelry or geological formations. <laughs> I loved their determined surges of vitality, which made them almost hot to the touch. Even their carelessness could be inspiring. It was a form of bright armor, and I tried to be respectful towards it when I didn't meet it head on. No homework, for example, and no interesting excuses. That was tiresome. What ailed adolescent girls was an acknowledged aspect of my job, alongside what might lift the ailing. They called me mum sometimes, the younger ones, and they gasped with horror as though no one had done it before. I did it myself, but the things I learned at school didn't work at home. I could only think that blood relations had different requirements of each other. The rate of exchange wasn't the same. The economy of sympathy had a different cellular structure. I had the wrong kind of patience, the wrong kind of sentimental, <clears throat> the wrong kind of sentimentality as far as Eleanor was concerned, the wrong arms and legs and eyes and ears and at home, the failures piling up were excoriating. I could neither understand nor believe the things I saw. Jean, my colleague, could tell I was suffering. Don't try so hard, she warned me. Louisa couldn't stand me for years. I just gave her a wide berth. <laughs> that gave me confidence, and I made up my mind to admire Eleanor from afar. I couldn't let her burn away at me so fiercely, and I was friendly and impersonal while I got some of my strength back. I tried to let her bounce off me, but the smashes of loathing that came from her, the poison silence, the lying and hostility and stealing and recriminations that followed, as though I'd taken her things, I wasn't up to it. She'd tell it differently, of course, but she wouldn't talk to me. The pain of cohabiting with someone who despised you, who thought you quite a few rungs lower than human, bracing that a particular species of domestic violence. It started a few weeks after she hit 13, the way she swung her love away from me. I, who had been father and mother to her, bed, table, and chair. And then when our ordinary smiling exchanges turned to derision and cruelty, it did feel like small acts of murder coming my way. I lost my nerve. I couldn't be civil to myself. 
There was no home at home. One awful night, I locked myself in the bathroom and punched myself in the face. I couldn't think what else to do. I heard a deep ringing sound and sat for a few moments on the edge of the bath, stroking my hot cheekbone. I was shocked to find I was in a world where there was nothing soft for me, no welcome. Her terrible attempts to black me out. There was no anything. One morning, I read a thing in the paper about trauma and its causes and treatments. The journalist was saying that the really damaging thing about the assault she had experienced as a teenager was the knowledge that she was absolutely nothing in the other person's eyes. Wow. The reader feels so desperately sorry for Ruth because oh, yeah. she is so good at school. I mean, the teenage girls at school think she's quite cool. Um, and yes, at, at home, it's, yeah, awful, <laughs> awful. I mean, it kept reminding me of, of that thing you would hear occasionally at that age when a, a friend of yours complaining about their parents said, well, I didn't ask to be born. And you know, it's unanswerable, really. Um, but at the heart of it, of course, is the brilliant title for the book. Are you, are you able to, without giving too much away, say where loved and missed comes from? Because well, it was funny. I was in um, Highgate Cemetery, where, where both my parents are, uh, our, our father's there, and um, I walked past Beryl Bainbridge's grave, and it said loved and missed on it. And I was, a, I was with a friend, and he started laughing, and I said, why are you laughing? And he said... Loved and missed. It sounds like she tried to love, but she wasn't very good at So the idea that a love that didn't land properly, that, that, that the intention may have been good, but the aim was wrong, that, that sort of came to me. And I like the idea that Loved and Missed also sounded a bit like a country and western song. It's very Patsy Cline. Coming back to the, the bit there, what you were saying about the mother who, who sort of can't get a, anything right, hovering over this book is a whole other book that her daughter might have written where she would have told us a completely different set of facts that might have explained things more, probably made the daughter seem much more in the right. And Ruth narrates almost the whole book and only really tells us the things she can bear for us to know. And so every so often something is touched at that she then retreats from. Or there's one point, in fact, where she writes a letter explaining things and she refers to um, her and her daughter and her mother's fatherlessness. She says, our fatherlessness, a hereditary curse, a hereditary disease. And um, this sense that there's a whole other book that's, that's almost trying to jump into this one that's being held at arm's length is a sort of important fact. But, but we read Eleanor's story over her mother's shoulder, course, and there yeah. are moments where Eleanor does seem monstrous in her, yeah. her tact. You know, it's this, I'll just quietly put this here, darling, yeah. in case you're hungry later. And you, yeah, but you Ruth, do, Ruth is very yeah. flawed as well. People mm. often don't see it, but she oh, no, makes I, some very bad it. decisions. <laughs> some of the reviews sort of talked to her about her as if she was a saint, and although that pleased me, I sort of felt that they'd read a slightly different book than yeah. the one I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, I, having, having been raised by, by, by one of those people who are meant to be saintly, I... I I know the, what it's like on the receiving end of that. Sadly, not a problem. One of the titles I'm saving up to use for a novel one day is The Home Life of the Saints. <laughs> Living with a saint is, is challenging. Asta, can we have a, an extract from yours? I, I hadn't realised the double meanings in your title. Because uh, you both died. My, yes. Yeah. You got your... I just took it at face value that it was, you know, that she had been loved. It's absolutely marvellous, the mist, and I love that. And don't you find once you've had it explained, you can't unhear it? So there's love in the mist as well. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, kept, I kept, when I was reading your book, I kept thinking that, that somewhere in a drawer was, was um, the daughter's version, and I loved that, that it was almost felt like it was just, just out of my earshot, and that even though it wasn't there on the page, it's sort of, I felt that you may have written it or that you had it in your head very much. Well, funnily enough, um, I wrote actually another, I don't even think Lenny, my editor, who's in the room, knows this, but I wrote another 10 years of this book in 
into the future where um, Lily, the granddaughter, grows up and has her own daughter. And because I sort of thought, why have four generations when you can have five? <laughs> Even more damage. <laughs> and then I did give the mother a voice, but I couldn't quite get it right somehow. And, and then I realized that it needed to be um, sort of shorter and sharper and more intense. But you pack, and you pack what, 17 years? Mm. almost, yeah. into, into this. So it, it, mm. it's admirably concise. Um, I remember reading a sentence of Henry James once where someone got married, had four children, two died, and then something else, else happened all in one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been 13 years. I bet there was one perfectly placed semicolon. <laughs> I remember another writer once saying to me when they realised you could take an author up, take a character upstairs without actually having them go upstairs. They realised that they were a writer. And I thought, oh, I see, of course, you know, you can do anything. So really, that's really taking it to a whole other degree. I really struggle with um, getting someone from one side of the front door to the other. And I often find myself describing the door knocker and the letterbox and things like that. And I realize yeah. you can just put them in the kitchen. You are I was going to read a, a piece um, quite late on in my book when my, my younger narrator, Kate, um, is really struggling with being the, I now feel slightly pained on her behalf, the saintly mother that she desperately <laughs> wants to be and does pretty well, but every so often she, she completely She does very good crafts it. with her daughter. She, she does yeah. good crafts. And I was going to read a bit about her just falling apart as she makes perfectly um, cooked pancakes. And, um, but then I decided that the, the, it was actually all just too sad since it was going to be that. So I didn't want to make you too miserable. Yeah. Really. So um, I'm reading a bit from my imagined uh, Rosaline, who is the sort of middle character, who is the young um, woman um, coming alive in, in late 50s um, Soho. Uh, and she comes from an Irish London family. And her family have just moved back to Ireland. And um, when she meets the big love um, of her life, Felix, and this is, I'd always hoped that I would ask my parents how they met. Um, neither of them liked to talk about the past particularly, and they weren't so sentimental, and they didn't long to sort of tell long stories, as I'm always doing I'll to say. my children. I told my mom, I've heard that before. I've never said that to either of my parents, as you can imagine. And um, so anyway, they, I never did get to ask them how they met. So I imagined that it was in the French house in Soho, and that's where I've set this scene of Rosaline and Felix. But when the book was published, I got a a message through my website saying, oh, um, my mother says she was with your mother when she met your father. And it, it wasn't in the French house. It was quite a different story, but it did, it did tie in and would be worthy of a chapter if I ever write an alternative version. Isn't it funny to come from a family where you were too delicate to ask your parents how they met? But it might seem really intrusive. Instead, <laughs> you'd have to write a 400-page novel about it. <laughs> 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 I knew that it was true, the story about how they met, because um, the woman said that her mother said that he'd spoken to her and said that he admired her beautiful frog eyes. And I thought, well, no one else would say that to a woman, so it must be true. Um, so here we go. <clears throat> Rosaline knew Felix Lichtman was dangerous. That was what she liked about him. Will you have a drink, he asked, and before she could answer, he'd ordered her a Kira Royale. They talked, pressed against the bar of the French club, and when it, whatever she told him, he wanted more. Her family, the move to Ireland, the girl who helped her mother with the paying guests, Frances, one of 17 surviving, who lived in a two-room cottage on the border of their land. She told him the farm had been her parents' dream. They saved the whole of her lifetime running the black horse in Brixton, her father spending every hour between ships, studying Farmers Weekly. And now they've gone and left you here, Felix Lichtman creased his eyes. Oh, my father, he still, he mustn't think she'd been abandoned. I, I told them I had to finish. She couldn't say school, not here in Soho. But we still have the pub till Daddy sells the lease. Her body felt heavy with the dread of that. And then I'll be going to join them, I suppose, unless, unless? She could feel the heat of him through the fine cloth of his clothes. The tall man pushed in beside them. Felix turned to him and spoke. And as he did, he reached across and laid his hand on her. 
The other man leant forward, intent on telling him some news. Felix's grip tightened, his thumb pressing warm against her wrist. Rosaline sipped her drink and did her best to appear calm, breathing in the babble of the room, the doors swinging open onto the street, stray drinkers gathered on the pavement. Her father would be home by now, bleary from the boat train. She better not stay out too late, although Margaret would be there to cover for her, telling him what a grand girl she'd been, studying all the hours, going out only once with her friend Michelle. We could go somewhere for a bite, Felix had turned to her, if you're hungry. Rosalie nodded, not because she was hungry, but because she felt herself hypnotized, her pulse quivering, sparks like darts storming up inside her. And as they snaked their way through the crush of people, his hand on her, she dreaded the moment when he would, by necessity, let go. But he didn't let go. He held on to her along the street, through the bright glass pattern door of a restaurant, steering as if her life depended on it, which quite possibly it did, towards a table where she gratefully sank down. Are the oysters fresh in today, Henry? Felix smiled up at the waiter. They are, Mr. Lichtman. Come in this afternoon. Felix raised his eyes to Rosaline, and when she nodded, he said they'd have two dozen and a bottle of champagne. <laughs> All food should be like this, she thought, as sunshine and sea brine slipped down inside her, and she reached for another oyster and tipped it up. So Felix was smiling. What will you do when you find a way to stay? In London, she took a sip of champagne. I'd like to be a journalist, although really, and she told him this, she'd wanted to be a dancer. Her parents would never, they were thinking she might work in a bank. She had to stop herself jumping up from the table and doing a cha-cha-cha right there in the room. A one and, and a two, and his eyes encouraged. And as she looked into the amused blue of his irises, she gulped another oyster, the rawness of it, filling her with courage. <laughs> true but it's incredibly romantic <laughs> and, and makes it all the more devastating when when things turn out as they do I mean the your title is actually something Felix says to her yes I I wrote that line quite far into the book um, as I was thinking what can be the most sort of wonderfully passionate and romantic thing someone could say I couldn't love you more he said and when I finished the book and I was really struggling because it didn't quite hang together and I bumped into someone who said and I, she said, how are you? And she didn't expect that I was going to tell her. Please tell her. <laughs> <laughs> and I, anyway, she, she, she didn't want to hear any more. She said, let me read it. And I went, really? Anyway, she, she read it very quickly. And, and it was a great person to bump into because she loved it. And she then said, oh, so devastating. And he says, I, I couldn't love you more. And I went, oh, oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And I realized I had never seen that, that he is flawed in his own way, as we all are, and he can only love her. He did his best. As, as he could yeah. love her. As but it, but it's actually a, a savagely honest thing to say. So, I'm, I'm married to someone else. This is the limitation yeah. of my love. And um, she and I, I was I, I was Rosaline by this point. I'd only heard what I wanted to hear, even though I'd written it. And um, I, I, I was listening to her talking, and she'd understood the book in such a different way, or such a deeper way than I'd read it. And she said, it's just it's, it's, it's so marvelous that you do that. And then I thought, oh, and, and that could be the title. I had many titles. None of them were quite right. I can't even remember what it was called at this point. And um, that became the title. And I was sort of on my way. I mean, just as in, in Susie's book, Lily, the, the youngest of the, of the women, in a way is, ends up trying to kind of redeem and stitch together these, this mother and grandmother who were so shattered in their relationship. So in yours, one of the, the kind of driving forces in the novel is Kate, the youngest, who knows she's adopted and wants to, has this urge to know what her real story is. Um, was that always the, going to be the, the, the driving force in the story? Well, I suppose once I realized that I wanted to go down and tell the sort of alternative story of a woman who doesn't keep her child, obviously then I realized Kate was adopted and then I had to, I, I did a lot of research into that. And um, when I realized, I had a real breakthrough moment when everything in the book was working apart from Kate's story. And I couldn't really understand. It seemed incredibly repetitive. She was endlessly being sort of saintly around her own child and rather sort of got down and having a difficult relationship with the father of her child. And 
I realized I'd forgotten that she's adopted. Not, uh, not all the time, but I need to know it every single word that I write. And once I rewrote it, um, I actually put all her chapters together and took and went away to the country just with Kate. And I read everything I rewrote, not that much, but every single moment of her story, she is suffering um, the complications of her adoption and how unresolved it is and how do you unresolved. Think, do you think she's feeling that more as she's attending so lovingly and performing, being such a good mother for her daughter, it's just sort of making it sharper and sharper within her? Yeah. That's what I felt when I was And I also think that because she had never been told anything by her family who had adopted her, I, and, and that, as a result of her finding out more, was that she softens towards them. So she sort of gets. So the, the adopted parents, she's never lacked for support. No, but, but it's there been is something cool. withheld, and yeah. that's that's tied in, isn't it? With and often the, information the that you withhold from your own children or they from you just creates such a chasm between you. And so I I saw that when when there was a chasm or disinformation, they could never really be close. Your, so. parent, your parents should have told you how they met, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of other things, too. <laughs> and that's also the, the, uh, an, a huge secret sort of darkening and ruining things is a bit in my book as well, because um, the grandmother, Ruth, for her daughter's whole life, withholds who her father is. She never knows, and that's yes. sort of such a, 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 a rotten thing to do to your child, you know, that, that even though she has very good reasons for it. And withholds, uh, withholds it from the reader as well. I mean, we are, we are left sort of wondering so much about, about that which is where it came from. I'm fascinated always to know how loved ones, writers' loved ones, cope with having a writer in the family. I think it was Ring Lardner, one of those 1950s wits in America, who said, when a, when a novelist is born into the family, the family has had it. Um, <laughs> and I know of my, from my own experience, my, my poor family have been battered by my relentless writing about family life because it is the bottomless subject wouldn't, wouldn't you say I mean you you both have written um, unsparingly really about the mess of family and the I feel Susie's dealt with it much more delicately um, <laughs> I'm always yeah. admiring um, maybe not so necessarily you, you've separated your your stories from the publicity around. I, I, I get slightly carried away and, and say to, being very careful in my stories, I then sort of say, make them seem even more autobiographical than they are, and then that's when I've upset people. And I think you've been, you maybe learned from my mistakes, or you just inherently have a better dial for privacy. But as Lenny was saying, people reading novels, they, they identify, they will identify with the character. Or Jasper was saying, you know, people never recognise themselves, but loved ones often do want to identify. Mm -hmm. and I, I think most novels yield less if you look, if you look in them for revel revelations about the writer's life. And, and um, I wrote a memoir about 12 years ago which was a sort of odd memoir in that it didn't have very much of my life in it, but it took episodes from Judy Garland's life and episodes from my life, a few episodes from my life, and used them to look at love and fame and rescue and grief and consolation. Yeah. Thank you. And I, I showed it to, I gave it to my mum and to my dad, and they both really liked it. But my mum's one kind of comment, which just shows how wonderfully eccentric she was, she said, I think you've been a tiny bit harsh on Liza Minnelli. <laughs> <laughs> wrote fiction before we did, and so I suppose she, she, um, she paved, the way. paved the way a bit. I, I feel um, the most exposing thing for me about my novels is they have my central nervous system maybe more than they have the uh, events of my life. There are, there are some crossovers. I've, you know, there's been a lot of addiction in the family, and I've, obviously that comes into this book, but the actual events aren't the same. And, and, um, I, I have, it didn't cause me to fall off anyone's Christmas no, card list no. or anything. <laughs> I, I often find when you, if you dare to revisit one of your books a few years on, it's quite shocking how exposed you then realise you are, because you think at the time when it's close, and only recently written it, oh, this is all wonderfully polished fiction and, and there's none of me in there. Um, and there are little things, value judgments and whatever that... 
I, be betraying. I, I gave a talk recently and I said that um, people speak all the time about unconditional love as if it's a very, very ordinary thing that occurs in, amongst families. And I feel it's actually rather rare and um, extraordinary in that, that, um, that to sort of love in the hope of nothing in return, or, or, or even if you do feel like that towards someone, if they do a lot of things to let you down, it's hard not to let the, that affect the measure of the love. But my daughter, who was in the audience, didn't like me saying that, and it, you know that, so I had to change my mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I do the opposite. To, well, it's funny. I I fret a lot at when the I'm time writing, of writing. Um, that I'm that I. You know, someone said about the shard of glass. So I, I think, I cannot believe I'm writing this. And I think, no, it's just too awful. I mustn't. And then I think, I know, but nothing else is as good. So I think, well, I'll, I'll just try it, and then I'll change it afterwards. And I often do, or I check. But I, I definitely put myself through a lot of worry in my desire to get the best story, um, even though I know that if I could just think of something better, I could let that lie. Um, but if you've got amazing sort of facts and occurrences within your actual family, to make up a thin imitation of that that's less interesting is not a good idea. Yeah. So I mean, you, you, bo you both have yeah. what I think of as a very well-stocked larder. Don't feel you need to make... I mean, you did step away in subject matter with Mr. Mack and I, Yes, I... was a departure. I, I have a, a few times, and... Um, I, I think that probably because my first novel, I couldn't pretend that it was a you know a made-up story of a five-year-old travelling around North Africa for two years with her mother. I it was very much um, marketed as being an autobiographical novel. Um, although I remembered probably enough to put on you know four or five pages, it was actually really a hard um, stretch of imagination to write that book. But because so much was made of that. Um, with my second book, which actually, oddly enough, was sort of probably slightly more autobiographical because it happened not so long before. It was based in my life. People said, is this based in your life? And I said, no. And then they just accepted it, and no one mentioned it. And I thought, oh, so it's that simple. And then that seemed amazing and to me. And my family, um, who were you know, depicted in that, particularly my sister and my father, uh, my sister Bella, that... I could see that they were a bit taken aback because I'd written it in the year between Hideous Kinky being finished and being published on a kind of wave of sort of exultant energy that someone had bought my book and that I didn't have to be an actress anymore and that it was just all so fantastic and I, I didn't realise what it was like to be published so I sort of, by the time it was published I'd written another book. I would have written it differently. But they, they were good. I mean, I, I said this to you yesterday, but my father, who was in it quite a lot, and it's not a it's a loving portrait, but it's it's not uncritical. And he said, oh, yes, for a while, a moment, I, I worried it was me. And then I thought, oh, no, I don't wear a watch. Well, I had a thing where I wrote, a, there was a father character who was a novelist, and the daughter, very religiously, wasn't ever going to read any, a, a single word he wrote. And, and uh, Dad said to our sister Rose, "Ah, oh, where she says the thirteen books, she's thinking of the thirteen paintings." <laughs> and she said, "No, she isn't." <laughs> but but Bella actually told me recently when I was asking her permission whether to write something. It was quite delicate between us, and she said, "Go for it." And then she said, in that second book, Fearless Fact, she said, "I said to Dad, I just can't believe that she just used my life." And he said, "It's fiction." <laughs> and so, thank you. you know, yeah, good for, good for him, actually, because yeah. that, that, that attitude is very protective. Yeah. And he was unhypocritical un in that way because of um, his work very much being the most important thing in his life. Mm. If he then had a lot of scruples about what we could write about, that would have been a bit rich. And it has to be said, <laughs> yeah. and, and it has to be said his work left you nowhere to hide if you were the subject of it. And so I think he perhaps understood yeah. that, that, that need to, to bore down. There was a liberation in that, and I think our, our mothers also understood. They'd given us an unusual background, so they expected us to be a bit unusual. That was okay, I, I felt. <laughs> 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 we can talk about this later. <laughs> now you put it like that, that makes exactly sense. <laughs> I'm dying to know what you're both working on next. Are you in a position to, to say? 
Um, I, for the first time in 30 years, I didn't have a burning need to tell any particular story, which I have to say, hmm, didn't love that feeling. I've been so lucky. I just always had an idea, and as I was finishing, I just couldn't wait. Um, so I've written uh, a collection of short stories um, since this book was finished, which I finished in July and almost immediately realized it wasn't quite right. So I've just start, I left for a while. I've just started working on it, and I, I, need, to, I need to change it in many ways. And partly it's because it's too personal. Ah, OK. <laughs> there is nowhere to hide, and I, I'm not looking. I don't yeah. want anyone to read it. Maybe I just needed to tell those stories. Interesting. How about you, Susie? I've just uh, finished a short story for a, a Virago's having its 15th anniversary next year's learning legend in her talk. and. Um, I've written a short story for it, uh, for a collection of short stories, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of tiny bit horrible, but it's about a woman who's obsessed with widowers. She only has romantic entanglements with widowers, and she's, she breaks up with them the minute they stop talking about their wives. She's sort of interested in the wives, but they're... <laughs> But the, she's interested in the fact that they haven't been mourned enough. She feels that um, that men can recover too quickly from 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 losing a significant other, and she sort of wants to. She's a sort of slight superhero wanting to put this right, <laughs> and she feels that they go into mourning for themselves rather than for 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 the for what the women have lost. And so it's it's quite complicated. She says a lot of things that are. In a way, grief is my subject, and she says a lot of things about um, a lot. A lot. Oh, I've completely lost my strength. Um, she, 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 she says a lot of things that are very delicate and sensitive and insightful about mourning, and a lot of things that are completely mad about mourning. Like, of course, you're if you're the mourning person, you're allowed to feel sad for what you've lost. But she's really outraged by that. She feels it's too selfish and. She also feels that dying women have to be too conscientious about how they die, or there's a thing now that when women are losing their lives that they have to think of what their 21st birthday present for the daughter's going to be, and that even after you're dead, you still have to be in charge of buying the present. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a, there's a, there's a all, all that. Of memory boxes and special, yeah, and it's curated. So it's, so it's quite a sort of strong, angry, Thing about I, I, can't wait. I, I love that you're both writing short stories. I'm, I'm passionate about the short story. I know publishers hate them. Lenny probably hates them because they never make them any money. But there is an intensity to them when they work. And there's no accident that some of the greatest Hollywood films are based on short stories, not on adapted novels. So, um, hurrah. <laughs> At this point, I know we're running out of time, so I have to throw you to the mercies of our very civilized audience, who I'm sure won't ask any inappropriate questions. I'm very aware <laughs> I'm holding. Yeah, I'm very aware I am holding the roving mic, so I'm now going to become voiceless while you put up your hands to ask questions. Can we have the first question, please? <laughs> they're so frightened. <laughs> I bet Lenny has a question. Oh, there we go. There's a question. Hi. Um, you both. You both talk about um, editing. Um, is, is what you do when you have grown so attached to a piece of writing? that you think you really struggle um, about either changing it or cutting it out? How do you go, what's the process that you go through to, um, to get it right? Mm. I think, I think that, that's a really interesting question because we, it's very hard to cut a lot out of a piece of work when you've worked so hard to put it in. And I find that I have to wait until I have so much that I don't miss hundred pages there, <laughs> which is what happened with this book. At one point, I, I, it was about 500 pages long, and I know that books can be long, but I don't really want this book to be that long, and, and there was a whole, um, there was a whole another section of the book um, that was set um, in Rosaline's life, um, 
in the 70s. I mean, that doesn't really make any sense for anyone who hasn't read it, but I realized that even though there were things in there that I was really pleased with, it didn't help the book. And I guess you stop, for me, I have to stop thinking about myself and think about the book almost as a separate entity and think what would serve the book best. And I cut it, but I always tell myself, I will be able to use this. And I, so far, never have been able to, but I tell myself that. And in fact, one of my short stories had some of those scenes in, just thrown into the middle. And I thought, oh, I've used them. It's like, you know, something I prepared earlier. And when I go through the whole thing, it just didn't work. And I just had to How about you? The book before this, like I had so many dilemmas that at one point I had five different versions of the book printed out. One that was mainly in the past tense and a little bit in the present, and then I just sort of I got in such a muddle with it. And in the end, like I had these five different versions, and I just sat down and read them one after the other. And then I thought, it's number three. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes trial and error is very sort of literal, and you're sellotape and scissors come into it, you know, that, yeah, And don't you find sometimes time is all you need? The time away from the book, you come back to it and you say, oh, it's blindingly obvious. I remember thinking I needed to hire a sports hall so I could lay the book out, page by page, page <laughs> like a game of Calvinism and sort of walk in between them and say, yes, I'm going to bring that page over to this. You know, well, there's something about this, I have such bad spatial dynamics, I sort of got lost between the tent and the, the green of the coming up. There's, there's something about the actual pieces of paper that I find quite helpful. Mm. Do we have another question? Right at the back. Can I ask if, um, if you were hoping that writing these books was going to be cathartic in some way, and whether it turned out to be? I didn't find the book, um, writing the book cathartic, but there are, there are some aspects of my mother in my book, quite indirectly, just some things that she went through, and they're not described at all as they are in the book. But as she's no longer with us, as I wrote the book, I felt incredibly close to her. So it was a whole other period of mourning that I was kind of allowed to have. So it felt like I was with her all the time. And I noticed that I felt when I exhaled, it often sounded to me the same as when she did. And so I had this wonderful extra closeness with her, just in quite a sort of abstract way, but I felt her sitting at my side, and that, that was really wonderful for me. Um, I remember someone once saying, writing isn't therapy, but it is therapeutic. And I really feel that, just writing generally. It's a sort of time that I take for myself to really think about what's most interesting me in that moment. And I, you talked about sort of, do you sometimes just leave it? Time is mm. the answer. I find it very hard to leave something because I'm quite impatient. Um, I very rarely do, even though I have with the stories. I've forced myself to. Um, but I, I also spent a lot of time thinking about my mother as a result. And I also went and spent time with her family in Ireland, where her sisters and my 10 cousins live. Um, something that I had hardly ever done before. And I started to learn so much about her and also their versions of her story, which I'd never heard because I'd been totally loyal to her. I was in her gang. And then I really listened to all the other versions. And I started to feel incredibly close to one of my aunts and felt so happy that that had been the result of writing this book. Um, so it was interesting. And often writing a book throws up things that you would never expect to happen. Um, but it's funny, even though it's only a few years since I finished it, that none of those things feel quite real anymore, as if that was then, and now I'm in a very different space. So, yeah, it's interesting. Thank you. We have uh, time for another question. <coughs> right over the back row. Some back questions. Okay, thank you very much. What kind of writing regimes do you have daily, week in, week out, when you're working on a book? Can I go? Um, I liked, I, for me, I was trying to write for a long time. Me and Susie actually used to be in a little book group together when we were, um, I'm five or six years older than Susie, so I was sort of in my, you must have been incredibly young, you must have been a teenager when I was sort of 23 or something. 
And um, we met every Thursday with a group of people that I'd met in a writing class. And in your kitchen. And we'd meet in my kitchen every Thursday for absolute years on end. It's amazing. And um, <laughs> we, we set little exercises, and I was trying out chapters, you know, sentences often of hideous kinky. Um, it was it was very useful. Yeah. Um, and it started with one of us would read something that we'd been working on for a long time, then we'd comment on it, and then we'd do a little exercise at the end, like a conversation between two people over a meal that's a bit disgusting. And, sort of <laughs> <right there. laughs> and I remember once um, I wrote something in the character of a man who was having lunch with his father, and the man imagined his father being cross that he hadn't shaved. And I remember the men around the table saying, that would never happen. And I, said, I, didn't know, I never knew why not. <laughs> in both your books, you write very well, these books, you write very well about the um, conflict between wanting to be creative or get on with your job and having to be a mother. Um, have you, as your children have grown, because you, your children are fairly grown up now, I think, yeah. yeah. I mean, it has, I've heard some mothers who are writers say that actually the point where they no longer have the excuse of motherhood is a bit scary because suddenly <laughs> the book fills the whole day. They're not fitting it into the precious hours before school. Yes, well, well to answer this man's question more, more thoroughly, what I, what I was really going to say was that I um, was writing, but it took me a long time to get the discipline to have a work regime because I didn't realise that my best time to write was in the morning. I used to, as so many people do, I did everything else to avoid doing it, and I'd sit down at my lowest ebb at about 2 p.m. What I realized was, as soon as I get up is when I feel most, it's not that I have more energy particularly, it's just I have, I'm in a, I have better morale. I often feel sort of ridiculously hopeful and optimistic about everything, and in the afternoon, everything seems almost hopeless. So I have to start by 10. I now go for a walk and often go for a swim, and, but I know I'm going to do it. And then I sit down and I try and do one long stint, so about four or five hours, and then I'm exhausted. And even if I think I might get back, I never do. And I, I, I do that most five days a week. I like to start as close as possible to the time that I've woken up, figuring that if I'm nearest to my unconscious and my sort of dream side, I'll, I'll, things will go better. And I'm also much cleverer in the morning. My IQ sort of declines as the day goes on. When I was at university, one of the tutors said, um, if you can work for an hour and a half before you have breakfast, your productivity of your whole life will be 22% higher than if you don't. And I remember thinking, okay, so that, that also was a good, a good, one of the best, most helpful things I learned at university. <laughs> um, so, so that was good as well. And, and um, yeah, I think both of us now probably almost love doing it more than we love doing anything else. So it, it can be harder to stop than to start in a way. Yeah. I mean, to, to what you were saying about children and having a structure, I mean, I, I found it was very useful. My children's sort of school day or before they had school nursery or having a childminder fitted in pretty much with the hours I always worked. Obviously, I didn't have time to recover and I didn't factor that in at first. And almost in shreds of exhaustion but and it seems so cruel that the first time in my writing life I didn't have a burning idea for a book because as my youngest son turned 18 this summer I was like that would be so crazy my children would be like why are you suddenly free all day when all those years we're like mom yeah. but um I you know hopefully that won't last too long that reminds me of when I was growing up my mum used to say the minute you're 18 I'm going to go around the world and then I turned 18, and then when I was about 22, she went to Ireland for a week. <laughs> funny, funny how things turn out. Um, this was the most wonderful conversation. We could go on for ages, but I know we've run out of time. Do please join me in thanking Esther and Susie, and please follow us. Let them out first, and then follow us to the bookshop, where I know they'll be happy to sign copies of their books. Thank you both so much.